Welcome to episode 44 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, our companion podcast to Calvary's Read the Whole Bible in a Year plan. For those of you who have kept up with it and are still listening to the podcast, a thousand blessings be upon your fields and your wine. Uh, This week, we are getting closer to the end of the gospel stories. We've been on the gospels for about a month now, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this week's episode is focusing on the chapters around the betrayal of Jesus, the arrest of Jesus, the Last Supper, and Jesus' death on the cross. There were a couple of things in these stories that I think are um, just very interesting things to talk about. And one of them is this character of Judas Iscariot. So I'm even people that have not read the Gospels probably have some impression of who Judas is, right? Can you tell us a little bit about what we know of Judas Iscariot before the, the stories for this week? You know, in some ways we don't know. <laughs> we know some, some probable facts about this man. We don't really know him uh, the Gospels don't really characterize him very deeply, um, and so that's interesting. But then again, the Gospels don't really characterize anybody super deeply, no. not even Jesus himself. <laughs> They're not those kinds of books. That's not fair. They do, but they do it in a much different way than modern biography or, or modern film would do it, um, through their actions, I suppose, not necessarily through their interior monologue. John, the Gospel of John gives us occasional glimpses into what Jesus is thinking <laughs> in particular circumstances but not very often or at least well yeah uh and so judas iscariot you know just he was one of the 12 disciples so jesus picked him uh, at the very beginning when he was founding his ministry uh judas you know is the name judah and so he likely could be a southerner from the territory of judah iscariot so people didn't really have last names back then in the way that we think you know you'd be you know ben the son of dan that would be your last name and that's still reflected in some last names today my actual last name henderson means the (laughs) son of henry you know danson hansen anyway uh and so iscariot is not judas's last name it could be a place name indicator uh or and i think that this has more fallen out of favor in scholarly circles the last few decades but it could also indicate that judas has some connection to a group called the sakari or the mm-hmm. dagger men which were kind of a type of zealot uh, freedom fighter against the roman empire who would just kind of mill in normal clothing and crowds and then all of a sudden they would stab somebody the sakari weren't really around yet in the time of Jesus, that was a few decades later that they really started to be active. And so I think that's part of why, you know, they say that Iscariot probably doesn't have much to do with that. And that's actually one of the things we'll talk about because we're going the possible motives for what mm. he did. Yeah, which again, yeah, there's not there's not a, a whole lot to go on. A few other things. We know that he was kind of the treasurer. He dealt with the money for Jesus's uh, rabbinical band. And uh, he also helped himself from... The treasury. We're told that, I believe, in the Gospel of Luke. Mm-hmm. Uh, tells us that Judas skimmed a little bit off the top. So he was a numbers guy. He was literate. You know, he was at least outwardly trustworthy that they felt like he could be the treasurer. And yet he also had this this uh, blatant failure of integrity that he'd, he'd dip his hand in the till. Apart from all that, I don't know if we know much. No, but that's 
That's great. I mean, he he manages to walk in and get an audience with the temple leadership, so that might be an indication that he's got some kind of family connection. You know, cousin Judas has a proposition. You know, I don't know. That might indicate a family might be. connection. It should That's also tenuous. just be that since he's the he's the treasurer right, of right. a rabbi. So we have this we have this big question that kind of hangs in. It's the the question of why Judas did what he did. And so for me, when I became a Christian at 18, um, you know, the first time that I heard the Judas story, I heard it in a cut and dry. Um, Judas wanted to have the attention that Jesus was getting and he was jealous. And so he turns, he agrees to turn over Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which is what you, you received for the, the, for a slave at the time. And that may be the case. We don't actually know. Um, but there are a couple of theories as to what's going on with Judas and why he did what he did. Pastor Ben, do you have any opinions about why Judas did what he did? So some of the like medieval caricatures that like he's just evil for evil's sake. You know, I don't know if that's ever been true for any person ever. Almost like I ever. think that people almost always think that they're doing a good thing or they're doing what they have to do in order to get at a good thing. Yes. You know, and so and and you know, there's no indication that Judas feels like personally slighted like that there's some kind of a personal man-to-man animosity, you know, that makes him want to do this. Um in terms of like a grudge against Jesus or anything like that. You know, because he really hasn't been, I mean, he's obviously, he must have been around the whole time, but like he's just not mentioned very much except at the beginning when he's first recruited, you know, and then here at the end when he betrays Jesus, you know, and so I don't know, you know, and I I referenced earlier that I think there's kind of, there could be kind of a freedom fighter-y lens, you know, way of looking at all this. So my current personal opinion is that Judas, I think, wanted to... I don't know if Judas thought that Jesus would actually die. I don't either. I don't know about that. Um, I think that he might have been trying to instigate the revolution that they were all kind of waiting on the edge of their seats for. And since Jesus just kept not doing it, (laughs) you know, Judas was like, all right, you know, we're going to arrange this meeting so that, you know, and and in some ways, like, you can kind of see... Like, it almost does a few times, right? Like, when the guards show up in the garden, yeah. Peter attacks them. You know, Jesus Peter thinks asks them Judas how much swords, how many swords they have. Like, I mean, you can just, it's like that the, the natural way, of, quote unquote, the natural sinful way of, of human history, like, keeps trying to, like, assert itself in these circumstances. Jesus keeps yes. restraining it and keeps moving it in a different direction. And so I just think that Judas, in some ways, is sort of a a singular kind of example of that of like okay we have to i have to take these matters into my own hands you know which i think i i don't think there's a strong like echo here of like you know all the other times in scripture where we see people take matters into their own hands again not because they're wanting to be bad but just they want the good thing now and they want it on their own time I think in terms of a pattern that's obviously here with Judas, yes. you know, that he's doing this thing to get what he thinks is a good thing. Well, and that was the thing is they were all waiting for Jesus to throw, take on and throw off Rome, right? All the miracles that he'd performed. You can just imagine the way they, they thought about how could this be turned against the Roman army? He's calming storms. He's, he's feeding thousands of people. You know, what could he do against Rome? And we see in Judas perhaps an attempt to make that happen. There is one thing that is, I think... An important piece 
Um, it's actually in John, not in Luke, that we hear about him putting his hand in the mm. till. But the the story of the woman that anoints Jesus at Bethany mm-hmm. is directly before Judas betraying Jesus in the book of Matthew. And in this story, not in Matthew, but in John, we hear from Judas that he's very upset about this mm-hmm. expense because the, the perfume is expensive and and that money could have gone to the poor. And John tells us actually he wasn't worried about the poor. He was mm-hmm. worried about himself. He wanted some money. And so not that this changes everything, but one of the things that's so true in in our our experiences is that a lot of times we don't have one motive for things. Mm. Or we may have a a a positive thing we say we're aiming for, but it'll actually accomplish something else, and that's the thing we really care about. Being the treasurer for the Messiah is probably going to be a pretty financially lucrative position in the kingdom that Judas expects to happen. And and so the incentive to get this thing going, especially since, since he seems to be grouchy about money shortly beforehand, um, there's there's almost certainly not just benevolence in his, his move, and you weren't saying that there was, but in his move to get Jesus arrested and enforce oh, sure. this conflict. Yeah. There's something there. Otherwise, if it was just benevolence, I don't know that he would have been felt guilty enough to kill himself afterwards. Well, and I think that you see this, you know, so throughout what we've seen in the Gospels, right, you kind of see this twin failure of the Jewish leaders in in rejecting their Messiah, but then also in the Jewish followers of Jesus that they, almost all of them, at some point, fail to really grasp what's happening and and what Jesus's role is and what their role is you know and you see this with Peter telling him oh no no you're not going to go get crucified you know and then James and John sending their mom you know to try and network for them be like now they're gonna be your your two your right, right and left, and left hand, hand right? men right and Jesus is like they are but you don't know what you're asking uh-huh. <laughs> you know and so I think that you can definitely see even in them you know, and I, I think this is true for us too, right? They're just, they're, they were just people, you know, certainly Jesus picked them, you know, out of yes. a larger group of people that were following him. But I don't think Jesus was under any delusions, you know, that these men had mixed motives, you know, for following him. And, sure. um, and I think that the experience in some ways, the experience of Jesus' death and resurrection was sort of the testing. And Jesus says this to Peter, that the devil has asked to sift you like wheat you know, to kind of boil some of this out of them, you know, because you are almost all of it out of them, because on the other side of the weekend, you know, you see very changed, you know, transformed yes. men. Uh, Judas obviously failed the test because he, you know, well, we don't know exactly when he killed himself in terms of the timeline, but, you know, he uh, so We have the story in Acts as well as in right. Matthew. you know, whereas the others made it past, so to speak. Well, sort of. I mean, they also, all of them, or almost all of them, abandoned Jesus, and Peter denied Jesus. And, yeah. you know. Well, and you brought up something that I wanted to, to talk about, is that it's interesting, as you read the Gospels, it really seems to me that the two characters of Judas and Peter are being held up side by side. Mm. And so, obviously, both of them, I think, expected Jesus to become a militaristic messiah, right? Both of them thought they were part of the next um, Maccabean movement but this one would work because of the the power they had seen and the man that they they'd come to know and trust and peter who had committed loyalty again and again who had denied that he would deny jesus um as after judas does what he does 
Um, Peter follows Jesus into the trial. Well, first he flees after Jesus tells him to stop stabbing people's ears off. Um, which is, I mean, again, evidence, as you said, that Peter misunderstood what was happening. Also, probably evidence that Peter was a lefty <laughs> because of the ear that was cut. And so, uh, Southpaws unite. Mm. But the, um, the, the interesting difference between Peter and Jesus, we get Peter rejecting Jesus three times over and over again. Judas had these checkpoints where he had choices, right? And he mm-hmm. kept, he stuck with it. So what then is the difference? Because could you imagine the moment of the third rooster crowing and Jesus making eye contact with Peter just as Peter denied him for the third time? Um, I mean, I can't imagine the guilt in that moment. That mm-hmm. guilt led Judas to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And that guilt led Peter to become Peter. What is the difference in two hearts to cause those two outcomes? Because I, I feel like we're being shown those two. And I think there's a there's a choice because all of us are going to have in, in the course of spiritual maturity, a moment like Peter when we make eye contact with Jesus and we realize that we have just done something really bad or we become aware of a part of ourselves that is really bad. Yeah. I, you know, I think the maybe the most glaring answer is, is that Judas was possessed by Satan and That's Peter fair. wasn't, <laughs> as far as we know. Well, we don't really know what that Jesus means. Jesus does call Peter Satan earlier in the Gospels. <laughs> but we don't, and, and I think that's relevant, but we don't really know what possessed by Satan means. Yeah, I wonder, because I think, I think it's in Luke. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you go. I oh, just the, in Luke, it's when Luke specifies that Jesus, when Jesus hands him the bread. Satan enters him. Yeah, Satan enters into him. So it's like something happened Yes. You know, in Judas, in that moment, like, I don't think, well, I don't know, because I feel like, I feel like the evangelical party line is that demons can't really affect you unless you somehow invite them in. Mm -hmm. But like, there are definitely stories in the Gospels that I think put the lie to that, like the little children who are possessed by demons. But we don't have to worry about it then if we are good evangelicals. Well, uh... that's true. And and I think that part of this, you know, and we want to try and dot and cross our theological T's here, you know, is that none of these men are Christians in the way that we understand it. (laughs) They don't have the Holy Spirit. (laughs) They're followers of Jesus, but they're not saved. They're not regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And so that, that fuzzies the math a little bit, I think. But uh, I still, you know, I think that part of why Luke or whichever gospel it is tells us that, you know, is really just to say that Judas has, you know, so, when we, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago with some of the possession stories that absolutely something in the spiritual realm is happening. I don't doubt that, you know, but I also think that the, the demonic possession of individual Israelites or individual Judeans bodies was a sort of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like it was related to the possession of the Israelites land by the Roman Empire like that they had been taken over by a foreign force and invaded I mean the the garrisoned demoniac literally the things say that their name is legion you know a Roman military unit so like the parallels there are unassailable in my opinion you know and so it's like so Judas who potentially again and this is I think, you know, it's just good to acknowledge over and over again, it is speculative, who is looking for some kind of a revolution, some kind of a change. I mean, they all were. They were all oppressed people. They wanted self-rule. 
we can't blame any of them for that you know certainly wanted to take advantage of it selfishly you know and so but then but then is invaded by like the emperor you know of the of the realm of darkness yeah, but after he'd taken several steps down the route already. oh absolutely yeah. yeah and so i'm just saying i don't think it happened it was just a from a zero to 60 yes. sort of a thing in one instant you know right. i think that the little glimpses we do get of judas you know they just keep even at the very beginning in the recruitment passage, it tells us, and Judas Iscariot, who would betray him, you know? And so, and so it's like the gospels from the beginning want us to, to not look at him sympathetically, yeah. you know, like they want us to suspect him. Um, and again, it's not a modern, you know, detective thriller or anything like that. So there's no building of suspense or anything, you know, but, but just this idea that they want us to be paying attention to him because he's the one who's going to betray Jesus. Yeah. And so I wonder if, just with so in saying that okay so judas was then possessed by the devil and and i don't know at that point i think there was probably no going back right for him like that was it um i but i don't know that you know i mean jesus has rescued plenty of other people from evil spirits and so perhaps there was a different path judas could have taken i don't know i feel like there was no going back until after the betrayal i feel like he doesn't get off the hook after the betrayal yeah that's true um but i I wonder if really the difference is is that Peter is following Jesus with some selfish motivations, whereas Judas, because of his selfish motivations, is following Jesus. Does that make sense? Yes. And those are different. (laughs) Those are very, very important differences. Like, we don't know. We're not given, like, an actual scene where, like, Judas first meets Jesus, right? Like we do with Peter, where Mm -hmm. he sees this miracle. He acknowledges that Jesus is at least a person of power or prophet. You know, and so it is It is this difficulty of, like, we just don't know. They're just not interested to tell us a lot, really, about Judas's story, except to, and I think in a teaching way, for Christian readers, for Christian listeners, to sit back and go, okay, so am I following Jesus, like Peter, with some selfish motivations kind of tagging along, or am I like Judas, when actually the selfish motivations are in front of the line, and as soon as Jesus doesn't suit those purposes anymore... I'm switching sides. Um, let's talk about Pontius Pilate because I feel like he's a character who is frequently, um, I mean, not very much is known about him. Uh, I think that we do know some things beyond what we find in the Bible. Pilate was was governor of this area for about 10 years. Uh, almost, I think Philos, or uh, not Philo, Josephus says exactly 10 years he was governor of this area. And this is not a, a prestigious area. It's not, he's not a, a successful governor to, to have gotten it. And we know from other sources that he had some trouble with the Jews. Um, he had this habit of messing around with the emperor religion of Rome. He liked, he liked emperor worship. So there's this story of him bringing a whole bunch of shields um, into, uh, where did he bring them that he wasn't supposed to? Just outside of the temple, if I'm not mistaken. And they almost certainly, we don't know this for sure, but had an inscription about Caesar being uh, uh, Lord of Lords or King of Kings or something along those lines. And then he also brought in all these standards of the face of Tiberius Caesar into into Jerusalem. Like flags or banners. Yeah, like flags. And so the, the Jews each time rebelled or, or caused a big ruckus. And to be fair to Pilate, I mean, he's a military man. He's not a... He's, he, he became a politician after being a military man. He didn't, he didn't have the same instincts that maybe a different person might have. And it was very odd to have a monotheistic people. I don't think he expected 
the trouble that he got, but he was on thin ice. Uh, Tiberius Caesar had been appealed to twice because of him. The way that that works is three strikes and you're dead. And so when this happens, the same people who are um, telling him they're going to go to Caesar if he doesn't crucify Jesus are the ones who can get him killed by Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate knows his life is on the line. And so he goes through what he goes through. And so here's my question. Um, some Christians throughout history have seen him as uh, so reluctant to crucify Jesus that it seems like he is a convert um, or heading in that direction, a, a, um, a pro, like a reluctant antagonist or, or a small protagonist. Um, other people see him as just a symbol of the corruption of Rome. Um, I'd love to hear what you think about Pontius Pilate in the story. How are we supposed to read him? Pilate is a fascinating character. One of the three humans to be named in the creed. Am I mm -hmm. right about that? Yep. Mary, Jesus, and Pontius Pilate. Yep. And so, I mean, the gospel writers weren't aware. I mean, the creeds were hundreds of years off from them, so that's not, you know, doesn't matter to our discussion of the text. But, uh, but I think that does indicate, like, he has a big role. He's a key figure, yep. you know, and if you're going to, if you're going to, if you have to kind of condense down, you know, the Christian story to its most bare bones, like Pilate is still is in, in there. there. And by the time of the creeds, they, at that time, they mostly thought that he'd become a saint. He had yeah. a, a saint day and everything. Yeah. Well, and it is, I mean, there's definitely some ambiguity because like his wife has dreams about Jesus, you know, and so she seems to be having some kind of an experience. What a weird thing to, <laughs> yeah. You know. And, uh, so who knows, who knows what happened? And I don't know, do, are we, do we really know what happened to Pilate after? No. Cause he was so moved. He was, he gets moved on from Judea. Yes. So he has, a, he has the third problem right? yeah. he has to go and, and see Tiberius Caesar and he's on his way to be executed because that's what happens when you get called the third time. And Tiberius Caesar died while Pilate was that's in right. route. And then he retired because yeah. he didn't want to, uh, be known as the governor that's a problem to the emperor right because really Pilate's job you know we use the word governor but he was not they were not at all like modern governors in terms of actually trying to like administer right services to the people that they were you know that they were over like his job was just to keep the taxes flowing to rome to keep the peace to keep the roads open to keep the ports moving that's it he chose the high priest too yeah, well, there you go. Yep. But but you know, with the yes, so this whole wet, you know, this whole system of control was just to keep everyone paying their taxes, and uh, you know, so he has no yeah. So I think that's just we should just keep that in mind, right? That it's not like he's a he's not a politician even in the way that we normally think of that. Like he is a military commander, kind of leading the occupying force of this province you know they're not interested in government in the way that we think of and they let the jewish sanhedrin do most of that which is what we see reflected in jesus's trial that he shuffled back and forth kind of between these two yeah. jurisdictions uh the romans let the jews the judeans kind of do most of their own you know governing they just weren't allowed to sentence people to death only uh the roman overlords could do that yes uh which again is what we see happening and so I think that Pilate, I mean, we don't know. I think that the way he is presented in the Gospels is, he is presented as, I think, proof that Rome does not live up to any of its own propaganda. Yes, I agree. And so he's not courageous. He's not a righteous man. 
he doesn't know what truth is, you know, all these things that Rome proclaims about itself prove to be hollow, kind of in the figure of, of Pontius Pilate. I don't know, like when I put myself in Pon- in Pilate's shoes, it's like, well, I don't think I want to sit here and say, I, I would have killed Jesus. That was probably the... <laughs> but just, just to, let's just say he was just some, you know, some crazy person, like none of the, none of the, you know, the gospel wasn't true. Just like that, it, he was in a rough. He was in a pickle. Yeah. You know, he really was. Like there was a no good option. Well, because he says you know. no to crucifying Jesus, and the Sanhedrin is upset. He says yes, and he has every reason to believe that all the people right, that the pro- people are going to yeah rebel, which did not happen, by the way. So I think I would just say that that you know, and and I think that really part of what the gospel writers are doing, you know, so they're who are they? Who are the who is their audience? Right. Well, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And at least early on, almost all of the Gentile Christians were participants somehow in the Roman Empire, mostly as slaves and servants, some highborn people, you know, but for the most part, you know, looking to the east, it's like it took a while for Christianity. Well, I guess it didn't take that long for Christianity to get to India or or some of these other places. Actually, surprisingly. Um, But uh, (laughs) yeah, it just seems like the Gospels are tooled. Especially for how early they were, I think, written and, and the stories were kind of set in their form, you know, in those first couple of decades. They're talking to Judean Christians and and kind of Roman Gentile Christians. And so, you know, I think that, that the gospel writers are trying to, and not just trying to display this, I think this was the fact of the matter, you know, is that no one, Jew or Gentile, handled this right. No. Like they were all, they have all sinned. They all sinned and fell short of the glory of God. I mean, yep. you know, and it, that just we watch that happen, you know, when we read the story. When you, What you said that I, I like so much is you said that, you know, he is the symbol that proves that Rome doesn't live up to its reputation. And I think that's his purpose. I think the Sanhedrin's purpose in this part of the story is to show that the Jewish faith doesn't live up to what it was supposed to be either. Corruption is present in both the greatest religion the world had ever produced and the greatest government the world had ever produced. And they conspired together to kill the Son of God. Um the, and we'll learn later when we get into Paul, some of what it seems like God was doing through that. So I have, I have a question I'd love to hear you talk about, Pastor Ben. Um, why did I have to go to Bible college before I was taught about zombies after uh, Jesus dies? In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that uh, dead people come out of their graves and wander around. What is happening there? And why isn't it talked about? ever again in the new testament oh i guess that does happen now i thought that happened after his resurrection nope that no that would be easier actually that'd that would be a be little easier little, to that deal would with. be a little easier so clayton you're referring to matthew 27 verse 51 so this is the instant after jesus dies and it says and behold the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, oh, there you go, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, oh, they go. went into the holy city and appeared to many. Well, so the Bible helped us out there. It did. <laughs> Although that's, so does that mean that they just hung out in their tombs for that's a day and a half? That's actually how it reads. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, uh, I think that that's just very strange. It is, it's strange. Well, I think in terms of the... The theological math, it makes sense that Jesus is rising again. His death and resurrection is the inbreaking of the, of the new kingdom and the new creation. 
And so just by virtue of the fact of just how potent and powerful that is, there was some spillover to some nearby tombs that resurrected those people too, which is kind of neat. I think it is weird. It is odd because there is no other record of this happening. And I'm not doubting, you know, but none of the other gospels mention this. There are no, like you'd think that some of these people would show up and act like, oh yeah, and here's one of the <laughs> folks that was dead that died 400 years ago and came back to life last weekend. Nope. So I don't know. It's uh, it's a bit. That's a bit of a puzzle. That's a bit of a puzzle. So if memory serves, and I might it's, be wrong, it's about a bit this. of a historical puzzle. I'm just like, yeah, that's that's a crazy. That's a crazy well, because, thing that happened. Like, but I think, right, again, we, theologically, it makes sense. But just how it fits into sure. like, <laughs> you know, it's just. The, so what? there's an there's an eclipse, right? And you know the sun is blocked out. We get reports of that mm. recorded in other parts of the world. They sense they saw the eclipse that they weren't expecting. Right, they saw the eclipse. Uh, the yeah. earthquake. People felt the earthquake. Yeah, yeah, it's written about. Nobody. There's no record of this. And so, if I'm not mistaken, I've read church fathers that both assume that like these are people that showed up, knocked on their family's doors, said, "Hey," and died again. Jesus is real. <laughs> By the way, I'm going back to my tomb. You know, they, they did not hang out. Oh. And there are some that thought, because they were just, they were be released from Sheol to be gospel, you know, preachers. And then sure. we went back. Um, and then there's other people that assumed that these are resurrections. And these people stuck around after tombs. You know, we, Lazaruses, basically. Mm-hmm. And we just don't know. But you're right. Like, I would have, well, I cannot believe it's not an X. Yeah. None of the other gospels, like the the so-called Gnostic gospels, mm-hmm. none of them mention this. Well, like, they don't think that resurrection's really a thing. <laughs> no, it's just so bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it would be easier if it was said and like three bodies of the saints who have fallen asleep were raised, but it says and many bodies many. of the saints. Yeah. This is I. We always say that something important is when there's a weird passage that you cannot figure out what to do with. The Bible is telling you something important. Um, well, I, I think there's something here. There, I just don't I, know no, what it I, is. Absolutely. And I, I don't think it's, but I, I mean, I guess I would just, yeah, I really. I, I think you're right. That is exactly what I say when people ask me about this. This is the power of the new kingdom right. of the new creation spilling over. And evidence of that is some resurrections. Jesus was raised to a new sort of bodily life yes, in was. which he will never die again. Whereas Lazarus and little girl and presumably these Matthew 27 people all died at, at some point. We assume so. <laughs> the last question here, or the last thing is the curtain is torn in the temple. And so do you want to tell us what this, this curtain is and why that's significant? Well, yeah. So if you recall back to our earlier reading in Exodus, uh, a few, a few minutes ago. Yeah. 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 No. So this is, you know, when Solomon or this is not Solomon's temple, but it's when they transition from the tent, the tabernacle, to the temple. You know, this is the the giant curtain that marks off the most holy place, which at this point is empty, but once upon a time would have held the Ark of the Covenant. Or at least as far as we know, it's empty. I don't know if they would have put anything else in there. Uh, or if anybody knew, because nobody ever went back there anymore. But anyway, it, it marked off the most holy place of the temple from the kind of front room of the temple. Um, and so it was a symbol in the same way that it was in the tabernacle in Solomon's temple. It's a symbol of, of Yahweh's unapproachability, you know, by sinful people. Only the high priest could enter behind the curtain and him only once a year. And they, you know, had to tie the rope around his ankle in case he died back there. And they had to drag him out and all that jazz. Um, 
and so yeah i mean this was a large i mean herod's temple was big 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 i mean they, the whole thing was big and so it was tall it was thick i mean the disciples didn't sneak in during the night and like cut it in half like this was a right that would have been a bizarre thing construction you know that miraculously tore in half yeah showing us that the way to god's presence was now forever open um, that was accomplished by the death of Jesus. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. <laughs>